If you'll take your copy of scripture and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians 10. This week, I want to deal with something I think that's very common to all of us. In fact, that's exactly what God says it is. That temptation is a common part of our life. Do you ever get tired of being tempted? It just, it just seems like that we go from one temptation to the next, to the next. And I don't know about you, but, you know, sometimes I wonder. I wonder why I'm still struggling with temptation. I love Jesus. I've given my life to him. I've surrendered myself to be in ministry and service to him. So why do I still struggle with temptation? Maybe you're thinking the same thing. And one of the things that's a real difficult struggle is if we are tempted by the same thing over and over again, we get, begin to believe that there's something wrong with us. That maybe there's sin in my life that I've not dealt with and that's why I'm continuing to be tempted. Sometimes we wonder, how do we handle temptation? I don't know about you, but the common thing that I do a lot of times when I handle temptation is I don't handle it, I just give into it. And then we wonder, does God have any help for us? I mean, if temptation is something that we're facing and it just seems to be there all the time, does God really care? And does he given us anything that we can really do to stand against the temptation in our life? Well, all of those questions we're going to answer today. But I want to say something now that I'm going to say a couple of times during the message today, and it's important. I want you to hear this. Being tempted is not a sin. Being tempted is not a sin. You have not committed a sin being tempted. What we do with temptation can lead to sin. Being tempted is not a sin. What we do with it can lead to sin. That's important. And I want you to hear that first. And I also want you to hear this. No matter how many times we are tempted, God is faithful to provide a way of escape and to help us say no. And so that's what we're going to learn about today. So let's read in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 14, where the Apostle Paul, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, speaks to the church at Corinth. I'm thankful that he spoke to this church because if you read the book of 1 Corinthians, you find out that their church is full of messed up people. Isn't that good to know? That that church was full of messed up people. It's good for me to know because I'm a messed up person. And it helps me to know that I can be a part of God's family even though I'm messed up. And so Paul's writing to a messed up church full of messed up people having all sorts of messed up problems. And he's going to answer one of these fundamental questions in our life. What do we do with, it, with temptation? Where does temptation come from? Why is it so bad? So let's look in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 14. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they craved. 
Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example and they were written for our instruction upon whom the end of the age has come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stand takes heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but what is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved brothers, flee from idolatry. Paul walks into the life of these people and the Holy Spirit is speaking through him to these people because they were doing the same things that the people of Israel were doing. They were struggling with the same temptations. They were struggling with the same fears and doubts and shame that the people of Israel were. And, and what Paul is trying to say is, listen, we need to look back and recognize that we have examples to instruct us on how to live in this broken world. But ultimately, he's trying to answer the question, what is temptation and why is it so destructive? Paul gives us these litany of examples from the Old Testament. And if you're well-read in the Old Testament, these things would have popped out in your head. Oh, I remember that story. I remember that story. Ended bad, all of them. But what was the common denominator? Temptation. Temptation had led them away from God and into sin and death. So Paul's trying to answer the question, what is temptation and why is it so destructive? Well, let me define temptation for you because I think it's important. Temptation is the offer of something that goes against God's will for your life. That's what temptation is. It's the offer of something that goes against God's will in your life. Now, it doesn't come to us like that, does it? It doesn't come to us in its naked form of this is rebellion, this is seduction, this is, you know, an offense that's going to cause you to sin and be destroyed. It doesn't come to us that way, does it? It's packaged very differently. But temptation fundamentally is the offer of something that goes against God's will in your life and for your life. And here's the reality. We live in a world broken by sin that is full of temptation. Temptation comes in a lot of forms and a lot of ways, but, but specifically like this, it comes from the world. The world we live in tells us that we don't have to worship God. We don't have to follow God. We don't have to honor God. And definitely God is not the center of the universe. We are. And here's what the world says. Get all you can while you can and spend it on yourself. You are the center of the universe. There is nothing else. So eat, drink, and be merry. Do what you want. Be happy. So we have the world out there telling us that there's this life that we can live that's all about us. And that sounds good, doesn't it? 
Then we have our enemy, Satan, who comes along and offers different temptations. And his temptation is this, that God is withholding something from you that's good. He's keeping good things from you because he's an evil father. And so you need to take control of your life and chart your own destiny. Go back to Genesis 3. The temptation is, listen, if you take this thing that God told you not to take, you will be like him. And Adam and Eve both said, that seems good. We want to be like God. And here's the funny thing. God was teaching them how to be like him. God had shown them how to be like him. And instead they said, we don't want to be like him. We want to be you. So Satan comes in the form of temptation and he says, here's all these things that God is withholding from you. And he says they're bad, but they're really not And if you just take control of your life and and give into this, then you can be like God. So we have the world, we have Satan, and then we have us. Because we are born with a sin nature. Our heart craves things that are not healthy for us. Our heart craves things that will never satisfy us. Our heart craves things that will destroy us. And so we begin to look around and see things and say, well, I really, really want that. I really, really need that. So temptation is an offer from the world, an offer from Satan or an offer from ourselves. To take something, to do something, to believe something, to live out something that is against God's will for our life. And here's the problem. So many times we just swat it away and dismiss it and say, it can't really be that bad. I mean, how bad is it if I tell this lie? How bad is it if I give in to this sin of immorality and pornography? I mean, really, what's the worst that can happen? Let me tell you what the worst that can happen is. Temptation leads to sin And sin gives birth to death. Destruction. See, the the problem with temptation and the problem with sin is they never deliver on the promise that they make to you. The promise they make is it won't cost you anything. It will give you everything. And even though it's wrong, you'll be the only person who never gets caught and never has to pay consequences. Now, I want you to think about this. Let me ask you this question. Has that ever been true for you? Has there ever been a sin, a temptation that you gave into, committed sin, and the consequences of sin showed up in your life? Has it ever been the case that you got what sin promised you, the temptation promised you? None of us have. So here it is. It is destructive because it never delivers on its promise. But what it does do, it's a trap. It draws you in, and when you're in, it's like a bear trap. It slams shut, and you're caught. And now you're in slavery to the thing that you thought was going to give you freedom. That's what it is, 
And that's why it's destructive. Now in verse 13, God tells us something that's very important that we need to understand to walk through this understanding of temptation and know how to deal with it. Here's what he says. He says, there is no temptation that has overtaken you that you're facing, but what is common to mankind. Do you catch what he's saying? Temptation is a common part of mankind. All of mankind struggles with temptation to sin. Now, this is important. This is going to help us later. There's nothing that you're facing right now that everyone on the face of the earth has fa hasn't faced before. In fact, he gives us all these examples in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, these things were written for you. These things are examples for you. These things are to instruct you. And we'll get to that in a minute. But here's the deal. Nothing that you're facing is new. Nothing that you're facing isn't something that everybody else hasn't already faced too. You are not alone. Here's what you need to hear today. The devil likes to tell you that you're all alone. Nobody's ever dealt with what you're facing. Nobody's ever dealt with what you're struggling with. And here's the thing. If you ever confess that you're struggling with temptation, nobody will believe you. Nobody will understand. And everybody will judge you. And here's the nonsense to that. If I judge your temptation, I'm judging myself because I've struggled with the same thing. If the church judges your temptation, the church is judging itself because the church has faced all these temptations. And so here's some hope that you need to hear today. It doesn't matter what you're tempted by. It doesn't matter what you're struggling with. You are not alone. This is common. Now there's also some sadness in that that this is the common part of what it means to be human. Why is temptation so tough? Why is temptation so common? Well, it's so common because we struggle with the same problem that our mother and father had, Adam and Eve. When presented with an option outside of what their good loving father had given them, they looked at that and said, God, I don't trust that what you're giving me is good enough. Fundamentally, temptation comes from the place where we say to God, I don't trust you. I don't trust you. I don't trust you to provide. I don't trust you to protect. I don't trust that your plan is what needs to be going on in my life. The temptation for all of us is we want to be the God of our life. And the examples that Paul gives in every one of these examples, it's the same thing. The people didn't trust God. The people didn't believe God. The people wanted to be God. All of mankind struggles with the temptation to sin. And all of us fail to take temptation seriously and we suffer for it. Look at verse 12. Therefore, let him who stands...
take heed that he does not fall. One of the things that's common to us is that we all struggle with temptation. We all struggle with these things that try to lead us away from God. And, but the reality is all of us fail because we don't take sin seriously. And we suffer for it. In the 11 verses that lead up to what we've just talked about, Paul had given instance after instance after instance after instance. And here's the thing. Paul could have written 17, 18, 20, 100 chapters on instances from the Bible and his own life where he failed to take sin seriously and he suffered for it. What God is trying to get across to us is that none of us take the temptation in our life serious enough. None of us take the sin in our life serious enough. And that's why we suffer for it. <laughs> Paul through the Holy Spirit is saying, listen, you don't have to learn the hard way. You don't have to learn the hard way. Look at the examples that you've seen of your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents and your ancestors for generations before you. Why don't you just look at what they've done and don't do that? Does that sound like a parent? Have you ever said that to your kids? Every parent's worst nightmare is that their kids have to figure out the hard way. I know, it's my worst nightmare. I try to share with my kids the dumb things that I say and the dumb things that I've done and the mistakes that I've made in hopes that they don't have to learn the hard way. But the funny thing is we hear all those things and here's what we think. That won't be me. That won't be me. I remember my parents sharing with me the mistakes that they had made and the things that they had done. And, you know, me being my 13, 15, 17, 18, 24 year old self. And I thought, well, that's because you're dumb. I mean, that's because you don't know as much as I do. That's because you've not experienced as much as I, and that, listen, God just made me smarter. And you know what happened? I smarted myself into some of the dumbest decisions I've ever made in my life. Thankfully, my parents weren't the type of parents that said, I told you so, but they could have. Here's what I want you to hear today. You don't have to learn the hard way. God has given us his word and it's full of people who have blown their life up with bad decisions. And what he says is, listen, just look, just read, just listen, don't do that. But here's what we miss in that too. Not only do we not need to learn the hard way, we don't need to do what I did and harden your heart. So I made all these bad choices and I made all these bad decisions because I was so smart and in my smartness, when the consequences showed up in my life, I blamed my parents and I blamed God. And I didn't want to hear anything about confession. I didn't want to hear anything about repentance. I didn't want to hear anything about saying I was wrong. See, here's the thing. God gives us these as an instruction, not to humiliate these people, but to show us what he does with people who fall. 
In every one of these situations, God showed mercy. Was there consequences? Yes. Was there trouble? Yes. But was there grace that came along every time? Yes. And so the thing that we need to recognize, it's not the end of the world when we don't, when we have to learn the hard way and we fall on our face and we blow everything up and we think everything's done. No, it's not. Because God gives grace. But we don't take sin seriously enough. We say really smart things like this. Sin isn't a big deal. Sin, it's not a big deal. Well, God seems to think that sin's a big deal. In fact, he told Cain, as Cain was getting ready to go out and kill Abel, he told, he told Cain, he said, listen, sin is crouching at your door and its desire is to own you, to have you, to possess you. That's a big deal. But we say super smart things. Now, I hope you note the sarcasm in my voice. We say super smart things like, this isn't a big deal. It's not really that bad. Listen to the things that the people of Israel convinced themselves that weren't a big deal. Verse 5, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased for they were laid low in the wilderness. These things happened as example for us so that we would not crave evil things like they did. Well, what evil things did they crave? They were idolaters, verse 6. Now, we think that idolatry is something that only happens in the Old Testament, and idolatry is only something that when you build a statue and you bow down before it. No, idolatry is putting something at the center of your life that is not God. And listen, all of us are guilty of idolatry. All of us. When we put our spouse in a place that they're not supposed to be, when we put our kids in a place where they're not supposed to be, we put our job or our hobbies in places that are not supposed to be, when that becomes the source of our life and the, the things that we try to find identity and peace in, that's idolatry. Here's how you know you're committing idolatry. Let somebody attack the thing at the center of your life and see what happens. I remember in a sermon in another church, I made mention, I, I'm from the South, grew up in the South, and one of our idols in the South is football, SEC football. And I made an offhanded comment in a sermon about football, and I got a bunch of angry emails, and I had a bunch of phone calls that I had to answer. Hmm, I think I nudged somebody's idol. What evil things did they convince themselves that wasn't such a big deal? Idolatry. Putting something at the center of your life that is not God. Or verse 8, acting immorally. And I love that he doesn't define exactly what that is because immorality comes in a lot of different forms. What we think, what we feel, what we say, and what we do. They acted immorally. Isn't it funny how quick we go to just push off all the things that tell us about not lying, not cheating, not coveting, not lusting, not doing all, well, that, that's not what it really means. Acting immorally. How about testing God? 
Verse 9, they let us try the Lord. Again, it's one of those things that we think doesn't happen in our life, but we test God a lot of times. We bring things into our life and tell God he's going to be okay with them being there. God, it's okay that this is here. Don't worry about it. I've got this. Don't worry about it. You, you go handle something else. I got this. Trying to make deals with God. If you do this, I'll do that. If I do this, you'll do that. Or just outright living in a way that does not honor our father and saying you should be okay with that. Now, here's what happens. Sometimes we begin to think, well, these don't apply to me. I don't do these things. How about this last one? Nor grumbling. Mm. I don't know anybody that doesn't grumble. The temptation to tell God that what he's doing isn't good. It always kills me when I read the Old Testament, but I really see myself in this, so I can't judge them too harshly. But that part where God begins to rain manna down on them to provide for them, and they eat it and say, you know, we don't, we don't really like this. We'd really like to go back to Egypt. It was so much better in Egypt to, to eat the trash the Egyptians threw out for us than to, do what, to eat what God has given us. So much better. And God would, in the desert, cause springs of water to flow from a rock so that they could drink. And they would say, you know, it's just, so, Moses, this is stupid and we don't like this. Can we go back to Egypt where we can slurp up the dirty water the Egyptians gave to us? That was so much tastier. We don't really like being in the desert, God. We liked it so much better when we were in Egypt and they beat us every day and worked us to death every day. We loved that. It was so much better. All of us fail to take temptation seriously and we suffer for it. We think sin isn't a big deal. And then we say the really smart thing, I'm willing to pay the price for what I'm doing. Can't be that bad, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step out. I'm going to go into this temptation. I'm going to let sin come in my life. And whatever the consequences come, I don't care. I'm willing to pay the price because it really can't be that bad. Now, I may be naive and I, I will admit that I probably am. But I don't think that people genuinely wake up one morning and decide to destroy their life. I don't think they wake up and say, you know what? I'd like to go have an affair and I want that to blow my family up. I want it to destroy my marriage and my relationship to my kids. No, I think what happens is they say this isn't a big deal because this meets the needs of what I want. My needs aren't being met and so God wants me to be happy and this person makes me happy. And then they say, I'm willing to pay the price and the price really can't be that bad. I mean, I, I'm not gonna get caught. I know my buddy Jim got caught or I know my friend Sarah got caught, but I'm not gonna get caught. And even if I do, it's not gonna be that bad. What's the worst that could happen? And what happens in that moment is that sin will take you further than you wanna go 
make you stay longer than you want to stay, and make you pay more than you could have ever dreamed that you would pay. And then what happens once we get into that place and we don't want to back up and we don't want to surrender and we don't want to confess and we don't want to repent, here's what we tell ourselves. I'm totally in control. I can stop anytime I want to. So here's a great question. If you can stop anytime you want to, why haven't you already? See, what happens is we have the same kind of struggle that Augustine had. Augustine was one of the early church fathers. He wrote a lot of wonderful books. But one of the things that I love about him, he was real. And Augustine struggled with lust. He had a woman that he slept with for 27 years, had a son with, never really married her, never really took the son in. But here he got convicted of what was happening in his life. And here's what he wrote down as a prayer. Father, give me victory over lust, just not right now. God, give me victory over lust. Just, just not right now. How many of us pray the same thing? We may not pray that, but here's what we say. I'm totally in control. I can stop anytime I want. Listen, if that's true, then let today be the day. Let's celebrate God's victory today by stopping. Verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation is overtaking you but what is common to mankind and God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Here's what I want you to key in on. I want you to really hear this. God is faithful. Aren't those the greatest words your, your ears have ever heard? God is faithful. Because I don't know about you, there are times in my life when I'm struggling or not struggling, I'm falling in temptation and falling and falling and falling. I begin to wonder, what does God think? How does God feel about this? How does God feel about me? I don't know if you need to write this down, highlight it, memorize it, but you need to commit this to memory. God is faithful. In 1 Timothy, it tells us when we are faithless, God is faithful. God is faithful to never let us go, to never walk away from us, and to never give up on us. If you're struggling and you're wondering how God feels about you in the temptation or the sin or the consequence, whatever part of that you may be in, here's how God feels. He is faithful to you. He'll never walk away. He'll never give up. He'll never wash his hands of you. God is faithful he keeps his promises. No matter how many times we break ours, no matter how many times we rebel, God keeps his promises. 
He keeps his promises to love us. He keeps his promise to protect us. He keeps his promise to lead us away from evil. He he keeps his promise to deliver us from evil. He keeps his promise to love us. He never breaks his promise because he's faithful. And here's the reality. This is the hardest thing for us to understand that God wants you to be free from your sin more than you do. God wants victory in your life more than you do. And because God is faithful and because he wants this to be true, he's done a couple of things that we need to stand on. Here's the first thing that he has done. God is faithful and that means that no temptation will be more than you can bear. Now, I want to say something really quick. I can't spend a lot of time on this, but there's a really bad saying in the church that developed out of this verse that doesn't mean what we think it means. When it says that God will never allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able, what people hear is God will never allow too much in your life. God will never give you more than you can handle. That's baloney. The Apostle Paul talked about what was going on in his life and he was shipwrecked and beaten, left for dead, like all these, any one of those things would have been enough to do me in. But he had list after list after list after list. And here's the thing. Yes, there are things that come into our life that's more than we can handle, but not temptation. You got to understand the difference. What God is saying is that there's no temptation that you will ever face that will be more than the power that you have to say no. No temptation will come into your life that you can't say no to. I'll say it again. Being tempted is not a sin but what we do with it could be. Temptation is common to our life, but it is not a sin. And here's where the battle is lost the most in my life and maybe it is for you. Here's where the battle is lost. Well, I'm tempted and so it's already bad, so I might as well just go ahead and do it. I was tempted and I wanted it and I thought about it for a minute and so because I thought about it, well, I've sinned, so I might as well just go all the way. No. Just because we are tempted, that is not a sin. That's part of living in this broken world. We have to recognize and understand that God says you can say no. And struggling with temptation is not a sign of weakness or spiritual immaturity. I've been a Christian a lot of years. I've been in ministry a lot of years. And this definition that I'm about to, or this quote that I'm about to read to you is something that set me free from the cycle of temptation and sin. Because I believe that when I struggle with temptation, that's a sign of weakness and spiritual immaturity. And I want you to hear this. Christian maturity is not indicated by the infrequency of temptation, but by the infrequency of succumbing to temptation. Douglas Moo Now, let me me say what he says. Christian maturity is not about being tempted less in your life. It's about saying no to temptation more. We can't control temptation. 
We can't control how it shows up in our life. What we can control is what we do with it. And true Christian maturity comes when we start saying no. And I tell this to people all the time when I'm counseling and I had to tell it to myself. That first no is really weak. And it's more like a question. Temptation comes and we say, uh, no, N no. But the more that we say no, the stronger our no gets, the more powerful our no gets. And that's what the point is. A sign of Christian maturity in your life is not that temptation has lessened because it's not, we live in a broken world. A sign of Christian maturity in your life is saying no and standing in no. Here's something you need to hear. You can resist temptation. You're not powerless. For so many years, I felt powerless against sin. For so many years, and you know, I've shared this many times. For so many years, I was addicted to pornography and I felt powerless. I would come on Sundays and Wednesdays and I would sing the songs and I would hear the sermons and I would come down front and I would cry my eyes out and say, God, I don't get it. I don't want this. And I, I can't say no. I just can't say no. It's because I didn't read his word. You can say no. You are not powerless. And here's a secret that I want to tell you that the devil doesn't want you to hear. If you're struggling with a temptation in your life right now, if you're being tempted to do something, guess what? You can say no. In fact, here's what we need to tell ourselves. If temptation shows up in my life, I can say no. If I'm being tempted, I can say no. Isn't that wonderful? It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter how strong it is or how powerful it is. If you're being tempted, here's what God says. You will never be tempted beyond your capacity to say no. If you're being tempted, you can say no. God is faithful and God provides a way of escape. God provides a way of escape. If you're feeling like you're about to fall and your no is faltering and you feel like I'm about to give in, you can start looking because God's opened a door for you to escape. No temptation has overtaken you, but what is common to man and God is faithful who will now not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also. Listen, so that you will be able to endure it, overcome it, not give in to it. God has given you some amazing ways of escape. Second Corinthians chapter 10 verses three through five tells us that God has given us divinely powerful weapons for tearing down strongholds in our life, but not just for tearing down strongholds, it's for saying no to temptation. He's given us divinely powerful weapons. What are those? Well, what we're looking in right now, God's word. I would encourage you to go home 
and look up Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. And you're going to see that Jesus simply said one word in Aramaic that turns into three words in English. It is written. The devil presented him something and said, this looks good, this smells good, this tastes good. And Jesus says, it's written. It is written. Man shall not live by bread alone. It's written that you will not tempt the Lord your God. It's written that you only worship and serve God and him alone. Listen, if we all could trust the divinely powerful weapon of the word and begin to hide it in our heart, Psalms tells us that I have hidden your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. Oh, do you get the connection? That's divinely powerful. The more of his word that goes in, the more of sin has to get pushed out. We have a divinely powerful weapon called prayer that unfortunately many of us use as our last resort. Instead of in the moment, dropping down on our knees and saying, God, I cannot deal with this. I need you to come in and move this temptation out of my life. God does not expect you in your own strength and your own power to deal with temptation. He's already given you the weapons that you need. God provides a way of escape for us. And one of the ways of escape is being quick to admit your struggles. Too many of us get completely messed up because we can't admit, we can't be real enough with ourselves, with God or anybody else to admit that we struggle. There's an old cliche in counseling ministry that goes like this. You're only as sick as your secrets. You're only as sick as your secrets. And what that means, the more secrets that you have, the more sickness in your life. And here's a weapon that God's given you. It's called accountability, vulnerability. Here's a lesson that I've learned that I hope you will learn. When you drag your secrets into the light, they have no power. Secrets thrive in the darkness. Secrets thrive on darkness. They want to keep everything in your life pushed down and secret and hidden because they tell you if you ever expose it, you're going to be destroyed. And here's the reality. If you ever expose them, they are destroyed. The night that God gave me deliverance from my addiction, I was in seminary. I'd really been struggling with temptation. I'd been really falling again with pornography. I was associate pastor to church. And I was teaching on Wednesday night. And God had given me the assignment to teach on confession. In fact, the title of that was Confession is Good for the Soul. And I wrote in my notes, this is where I confess. And I laughed and I was like, God, you really are funny because that ain't happening. Do you know what would happen if I confess in front of the church? Let me tell you what would happen. They'll boo me. They'll throw tomatoes at me. They'll kick me out. I'll never, they'll turn me in. I'll never be able to minister ever again. So I went that night 
and began to teach that lesson that confession is good for the soul and you're only as sick as your secrets and you need to drag this stuff into the light, believe all that, wasn't going to do it. And the moment came and all of a sudden it just began to pour out of my mouth. I'm addicted to pornography and I need help. I don't know how to stop. And as soon as I said it, I felt all of the oxygen in the room get sucked out. I thought I was going to pass out. And I said, it's time to wrap this thing up and I need to go home. So I closed and I tried to leave, but I couldn't leave. You know why? Because there was a line of people waiting for me. And every one of those people came and they hugged me and they prayed over me and they held me accountable. And that was the night that I was set free. Listen, devil is trying to tell you that if you open up and you get real and you drag this stuff in the light, that we're going to judge you and that we're going to hate you and we're going to condemn you. I'm not asking you to do what I just did. I confessed again right here, right now. And look what happened. Listen, use the gift that God has given you. This is the place. We are the people that you need to come and get real with and say, this is what I'm struggling with. And we'll say, guess what? Me too. Right after that night, I was having lunch with a friend of mine that I love dearly, who was a godly example in my life. And I confessed to him because that's what they told me to do. I needed to confess and keep dragging this stuff in the light so I can find freedom. And so I called him and said, listen, I need to talk. And I really kind of, <laughs> kind of put this thing up. Like, I got to tell you something you're just not going to believe. And I'm so sorry. And I confess, and he was like, that's it? I got a lot of junk, too. Let me tell you where I'm struggling. God gives a way of escape. But here's the promise. Here's the beautiful promise in this passage that you need to hear. You are not alone. What you're going through is common. What you're going through is normal. And you don't have to do it alone. And you can confess and you can repent and you can get accountable. You can drag this stuff in the light and today find victory. Here's the beautiful promise found here you need to hear. God has, God is, and God always will be faithful to you. I know I share this verse all the time, but it's so good and it applies so many places, but here it is, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, catch this line, if we confess our sins, he is faithful. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Every time. Now, I know that that seems like a lot, but here's the reality. All you need to do is take the first step. See, we tell ourselves, I'm too far gone. I've gone so far down the road, it's too many steps back. God doesn't ask us to take the steps back. He just asks us to take one step and turn to him. And when we turn to him, it's like the prodigal son, he comes running. 
He comes running and he wraps his arms around us and he takes us home. So, can you take the first step? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that we don't have to be overcome by temptation. We thank you that you're always faithful. And we thank you that we just need to take a step. So I ask today that you would move on our heart and help us to take that step right now. That's our prayer. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.